0: Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is Doing it for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have John Berman of CNN. Uh, and we talked about, you know, a lot of different things and it was a it was a really fun conversation. I've known uh, John through Twitter for a few years now. He's a big Red Sox fan, And so uh, we connected on Twitter that way and uh, we, we talked Sox from time to time on there, but we talked about a, uh, his, his journalism career and, and uh, his kind of rise to CNN and, and hosting the, the program's uh, early start and uh, one other program on there on a daily basis. Uh, so we talked about his journalism career and we talked about uh, also getting started out of college really with, with ABC and working for Peter Jennings as the lead writer for his show uh, back kind of in the glory days of the nightly news era. in in the late 90s and so we we got into some really interesting stories and tidbits about working for Peter Jennings you know the legendary news broadcaster we talked a little baseball uh, but mostly we kind of talked about what it's like to to be in the news media today be on television and be a part of that whole group uh, of channels and, and that competition and and all of that stuff uh, it was a really really great conversation and, and i'm really glad that that we had john on the show this week it's kind of a change of pace from what we've seen from the, the first couple of shows this is not really a, a sports podcast really um and you know john has some interesting things to say about covering politics and covering the war and a lot of other things so i really hope you guys do enjoy the conversation uh so without further ado this is john berman of cnn John Berman, thanks for uh, coming on to the show today. I really appreciate the time.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Uh, so you're heading down to Iowa to to cover the caucuses uh, today. So uh, what is how, what, how does your job kind of change with with the election season coming up?
1: It gets even more awesome. No, the the Iowa caucuses Monday night. Look, I'm a political junkie, and I've I've covered elections for a long time. I mean, uh, since, since 1996, my first one on the trail was 2000. Uh, and it's just exciting to be out there and, and to be in the middle of the moment. Uh, um, and we're in the final days before the early voting states. And, and over the next few weeks, it's going to be, you know, almost all of our coverage will be every move uh, that these candidates make, uh, every time they speak, where they go, what they say, what they do, and, and how they go after each other. So it's a lot of fun.
0: Do you th- I mean how much do you think about uh how how much the the media influences the the elections and and the coverage and how much uh w- when you're in your pre-production meetings how much do you kind of consider uh how much how much airtime you're going to be giving to each of these candidates and and how much you guys talk about them
1: Look you know you you try to you try to cover what is actually news right so if a candidate if you know a candidate's going to say something different or new uh, you try to be covering that. If it's just the same old stump speech that they're doing, you try to stay away from that. Um, and you try to make sure that you're giving people an accurate depiction of what's happening out there on the campaign trail. This election has been unusual. You have Donald Trump yet a mid- media star and was beforehand. And obviously, he's driven a lot of the coverage in ways that has been very different than past elections. And he's gotten a lot of airtime. Uh, um, some has people Trump- think he's received... Has Trump... I mean, some people think he's received an unfair amount of airtime, but I will also say that Donald Trump does every interview. I mean, I've never interviewed him, but he's on doing an interview with somebody every day. He says yes to everybody, like all the time. Uh, so it's to his credit, in some cases, that he gets so much coverage.
0: How has how Trump, uh, Trump kind of changed uh, or made this election different than any other one you've covered
1: so far in your career? Well, because what's different is that the rules that normally apply to campaigns don't apply to him. You know, once you cover a few campaigns, you start to see patterns and you start to, you know, feel comfortable that what you've seen in the past will happen again. But Donald Trump, you know, he's insulted John McCain's war record, insulted the fact that he was a prisoner of war. In past campaigns, that alone would have been enough to sink someone's candidacy. Donald Trump's done that like, you know, six times since then. You know, said something that everyone thought would end his campaign, and it doesn't. Uh, He has remarkable... Uh, resilience in, in ways that I've never seen before in a candidate. But he's, a, I think, partially because he's measured by a different standard, not by the media, um, but by the voting population. They look at him and they say, he's not a politician, so we're not going to give him those grades. Uh, you know, I wonder if he starts winning primaries, if he's judged somewhat differently. Uh,
0: what is, uh? how have you seen Trump kind of approaches his election campaign uh, differently than you have seen, uh, you know, traditional candidates approach it in the past so
1: far through the media. Well, with Donald Trump, it's due every interview. He's on the air constantly. He doesn't say no to interviews. He'll talk to morning shows. He'll do it by phone. He'll talk to reporters out there on the trail who pull him aside. Then he does these big rallies. He's not as much into retail campaigning, which is something you normally see in the early states. And by that, I mean, you know, going to house parties, going to kitchen tables, doing town meetings in New Hampshire and Iowa. He doesn't do that as much as he just does big rallies. And he counts on the coverage that he gets from, you know, some of the more outrageous things he says just to overwhelm uh, the media landscape. Uh,
0: what, what has been your, your favorite election to cover um, in, in just terms of, you know, the, the storylines and, and what has been most inter- interesting to you as a reporter?
1: When I, uh, in 2000, um, I covered George W. Bush. I was a, I was a producer at that point uh, with ABC News. Went out on the campaign trail with Bush full time in October of 1999. And I covered him all the way through his first six months in the White House. And I, I basically just like camped out with George W. Bush. I, you know, I I lived with him. I more or less moved to Austin where the campaign was headquartered. I was on the road full time. Um, so I saw the whole thing beginning to end. So that was the most thrilling for me and the most complete, because I was there the whole time. And that was, you know, that that election went into overtime, extra innings, you know, uh, except they had no closer. You know, it, it's a, it's a, the bullpen was spent, and it went into extra innings. It was, it was, you know, it was amazing to see.
0: Uh, and and you know, touching on your your time at ABC News, that's where you got a job out of college.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, how did that happen? I, I, when I graduated college, after driving cross country with uh my one of my roommates getting back home, I had this notion that I wanted to, um be involved, I graduated college in 1995 and while I was young and didn't have much foresight, I had the idea that I wanted to be involved in covering the 96 campaign. I was a So well, I, you know, I sent out letters to news organizations and, and I had no real journalistic background, I really didn't, but I had read Boys on the Bus, which if you haven't read is a great book. Timothy Krauss wrote a, a book, a very famous book called Boys on the Bus, which is about covering the 1972 presidential election. And I read that my senior year in college, and I decided, I want to do this. I want to go out in the campaign trail and be in the campaign trail. So when I graduated college, I, you know, I wrote all these news organizations. I said, hey, I know all this stuff about politics. You know, hire me, I'll do anything. Um, and then pretty much no one wanted to hire me. Um, and I begged, borrow, and stole my way into an internship at ABC um, the fall and, of 95. And then I got them essentially to hire me as an overnight desk assistant, which is making, weekend overnight desk assistants, which is like making coffee and making copies and answering phones from midnight to 8 a.m., you know, Friday night, Saturday night. And then that led to, an, you know, ultimately I became a regular desk assistant. And then I did get hired pretty quickly once I was within the door as a researcher um, for, the, for the team that was covering the election on the 1996 election year. So I worked, you know, doing research, putting together packets of information, um, learning about the various candidates in 1996. So I ended up getting uh, in the door that way. And I also, I, the other thing I should, I should, and I always make sure I make this clear, I, I, it, it sounds like I had a grand plan and I executed it. Um, the truth is, all I really wanted to do was move to New York to be with my girlfriend, who was down here already, <laughs> uh, who is now my wife. So so it works or, out. Journalism is just, jar- journalism was like a side benefit to the plan. Uh, it, um, you know. But the, the actual goal was to be with my girlfriend. Now my wife. The rest of it just sort of fell into place.
0: Um. So there wasn't really a plan at this point to to be on air. Then it from from what it sounds like.
1: No. You know. No. I. You know. No. I. I. I honestly, I. I didn't have a, a plan from the beginning of that. I. Um. I knew I wanted to be covering politics. Um. I'd also applied to law school. I. I, I moved to New York. Um. But I had already been accepted to law school, and I kept deferring each year, thinking I'll go next year, I'm just going to work one more year at ABC, uh, but I'll go to law school next year. And finally, I think after three years, the law school that had accepted me said, you you got to stop, you know, you're know, you done. No, we're not going to let you defer any more years, you can't come. So uh, that stopped, and then I just stayed in the business. At ABC, I had, um, I had a tremendous uh, number of opportunities, um, and I got very lucky. Um, some stuff, and, and, and it just sort of, I, every step I took in there, I kept on getting more and more hooked um, in journalism, in, in broadcast journalism in particular. I was, you know, I was a researcher um, for, for the election year. I said then I ended up being a researcher for World News Tonight, which was their evening newscast, and Peter Jennings was the anchor for that, um, and this is in 1996, and then very quickly, uh, they were looking for a, a young writer to help write. For Peter Jennings, in 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 honestly, just as a function of being in building and in an office right now where they were looking, they're like, "Hey, you want to come try to be far from Peter?" And I started writing, um, and I you know I started being a writer for uh for Peter Jennings on, on World News Tonight. And when they hired me, I was the third writer of three, but within a couple months, really, not even two months, just from attrition and other things, I was the senior writer. I was I was the head writer. For Peter Jennings, having done it for you know a month and a half um and having no experience. And that that was sort of the big break that that was that was a big break that I didn't necessarily earn mm-hmm. or deserve. It just sort of happened.
0: What are your some of your favorite memories from working with uh Peter Jennings in, in that time?
1: You know, he it was to be able and I used to sit right next to him during the broadcast uh text to someone who has complete mastery of his art uh, was beyond a privilege. I mean, it was it was it was stunning to see. You know, um, you'll understand this because you're a baseball fan. You know, Ted Williams. They used to say the ball slowed down, right, when, when right. it got to him, and he used yeah. to see every lace on the ball. Peter, when there was breaking news, when there was stuff happening, when the world was falling apart, I think it started to slow down for him. And he was able to process it in a way that was just so remarkable and so different. Uh, And and I just was in awe of it. Um, You know, he had an incredible ability to listen um, to everything around him and and to just process it. And and, uh, it was amazing and speak with authority and um, and stay curious through it all. That it was it was incredible. Like he was, you know, Peter, anyone who ever worked at ABC News, you, you know, Peter Tough. I mean, Peter was demand standards. Um, I was so young and inexperienced, he had every reason to be tough and have, you know, and demanding of me, and he was, but he was also incredibly nurturing. Uh, you know, the opportunity he gave me is, is I, I, I still shake my head in disbelief. That that I was able to, to, to be there. I was with him through impeachment, through you know through Bill Clinton's impeachment. I was a head writer for that. I was in D.C. all the time for that, um, with him. Went to Cuba to see the Pope visit, and we flew back to handle the Monica Lewinsky scandal. There was the Columbine shooting, which was awful. Uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was incredible. Um, and it was just being near, you know, it it was to me it was just all learning. It was just being next to greatness that was uh that was incredible.
0: What is what is some of uh, the memories that stick out uh, with with Peter and uh, and, and some of the, the some of the stories that you take away? Just being like, whoa! Like I learned a lot from this, and, and maybe not realizing at the time.
1: Um, you know, I remember there was one night that uh, that Bob Hope, uh, the Associated Press was reporting Bob Hope had died, um, and it turned out he didn't die. And, uh, you know, I remember Peter essentially saying to me, you know, you know, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it, you know, basically, you know, don't trust anything you hear, um, always have to know, you know, for sure. Um, I remember he went, you know, Charles Corral, the great, you know, CBS journalist, um, passed away and Peter went to his funeral and came back with a flower, uh, from his lapel from the funeral and he gave it to me and he said, here, take this, you know, um, you know, this is, if you ever get an ounce of the greatness that this man had, you know, you'll, you'll be lucky. Um, he used to, sometimes he used to, um, we used to write our pages for him, his scripts, and he, we'd print them out and he would, he would mark them up by hand with a calligraphy pen. And he would, occasionally he'd circle something with a question mark and that meant, you know, he didn't understand it. He'd occasionally write huh on it with a question mark, which meant not, either he didn't understand it or he didn't like it. And occasionally he would write die, like <laughs> D-I-E, die. And I don't think he wanted the story to die. I think he was telling you. It I was like his way of saying, this is awful. No, but he had really high standards in a good way. And it, 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 was, it was, you know, it was great. And it, to, to, to any time I could write something for him and actually have him read it out loud, unedited, or largely how I wrote it was, you know, just a huge, huge victory.
0: What, what do you think was, was the biggest takeaway from working with him?
1: Our biggest takeaway was be curious. Always be curious. You know, the best. sometimes the best question you can ask in journalism is, you know, really. Like, so you ask a question, someone says, you know, I say, what color is the sky? They say, it's blue. I go, really? Um, I, I, I think you just want to always have a deeper layer of curiosity and always want to learn. I mean, this was a guy, by the time I worked for him, he'd been, you know, he'd been in the business forever. And he'd been, you know, chief foreign correspondent. He'd been world news ad- he'd been stationed he'd been in Iran he'd been in Israel he'd been in Beirut he'd been everywhere in the world ten times over and he still wanted to go different places and he still was curious about places he had um, and couldn't possibly learn enough no matter what he ever did uh, and that was um, I mean that's addictive it's, it's just that level of curiosity and drive is uh, you know is addictive I also the other thing with him that was um, interesting is is that you know he was Peter Jennings and no one else was going to be Peter Jennings you have to sort of learn how to be He, he told he kind of Indirectly, I learned to learn how to be yourself. You know, when I started to be a correspondent a few years after I wrote for Peter, um, I you know I learned to write not bad. I learned to be a pretty good TV writer, but I was writing for Peter Jennings, and so the stuff that I was putting down on paper was being out loud by you know the most erudite, eloquent human being in the history of mankind. You know, And, and so I sat down to write my own stuff uh and i was still writing in a style that i would use to write for peter and i sounded like a freaking idiot you know it sounds like you know who is this twerp who thinks he's you know you know he's the king of england it just doesn't make any sense and so it sort of taught me you <laughs> have to know uh you have to know who you are and what you are mm-hmm. um if you're going to succeed
0: so when you so you become a correspondent and and you were assigned to cover the white house uh what was that learning curve like for you when you start first start doing the, the television work?
1: Well so I wasn't so I was um what happened was after the Bush campaign which I told you about, I um I went down to Washington um to help with the transition and, and work for ABC News in the White House for the first five or six months uh, and that's when I started doing on-air stuff. I was assigned to cover the White House. That much is very true, but I certainly wasn't a White House correspondent. I was more or less a White House producer who started doing – I started doing radio at that point, and I started doing my very first on-air things. Um, and when you start being on-air, all of a sudden you've got to worry about how you look and how you sound, which is horrifying and terrifying. Um, in that, so that, that, there was a learning curve right there, to be sure. Um, took some getting used to. Definitely took some getting used to.
0: Was that was that weird for you, just, like, being a producer and being a writer? And I, mean, I know a lot of writers just, like, completely disregard what they look like on a daily basis. And then, like, being on TV and uh, having to care about, like, hey, my hair doesn't look good today or, you know, my makeup is off or some, something along those sorts.
1: Yeah, it wasn't weird. It was high. I mean, I, you know, it, it hated it. You know, I hated it. You know, you, you know, you have people say, you know, your ears look big. I'm like, really? Because I can't do anything about that. <laughs> um, that's not that's not a helpful note um, because they're not going to change my ears that are attached to my head. Um, no, you know, it's tough, and it's it's um it's not humiliating, but it's you know, it's humbling. I mean, you, you know, you, you again, you realize, you know, I look how I look, and it's in a business where cosmetic cosmetics matter. Um, you know it's uh it's sort of you learn it is what it is part of it again was the stuff i told you about about writing and learning how to get your voice that that was where you can make a difference and improve over time and and that was a fun product that was much more fun than learning how to look on tv what
0: were there any uh, day uh any memories from the early days of, of being on television where you remember just kind of not doing well and and what were you thinking when when that kind of stuff was happening
1: um that I wanted to die um no i uh, i um it it was ne- so i when I made the transition on air it wasn 't completely um this is what i want to do I need to succeed at this it was you know i oh, 'll give this a try and see how it goes um, and you know when you when you would get a note like i said that your ears look big that would be that would be frustrating um when I'm just trying to think of stories that I'm comfortable telling. Um, you know, I'll tell you. I mean, so, 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 you know, I uh, when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004, um, at that point I was actually already fairly established as a correspondent and been doing, you know, at that point for a few years, a couple of years out, of it, and been doing world news on air and GM. And I had covered wars by that point. But the Red Sox won the World Series. They sent me to Boston um to to go write the story that I'd written in my head like, you know, a thousand times since I was born, you know, how, how glorious it was gonna be when the Red Sox won the World Series. I sent my script in and um and uh and Peter, uh, who who, you know, used to edit the sc- even even the correspondence scripts, um, or have to give them approval was sort of like, eh, this is okay.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like,
1: you know, I'm like, really? Because this was like, like the most important thing to me in my life. You know, I've been writing this since, you know, I was I was eight years old. Um you know, and, and uh again, you know, it was that was high standards are always good and you want to drive to achieve more, but there are other times you're like, they're just differences in tastes and sometimes, you know, what I consider to be great or my best isn't gonna be what they want on the T V and you just have to sort of learn to live with that.
0: Uh, what what was that experience like for you seeing the, the Sox win the World Series for the first time and, and being there to cover? Well, it? that was
1: independent. I, I wasn't at the game. They sent me up the day the morning after to that. Um, it, it, it had been a long year. I mean, it, obviously, you know, you're you're like eight years old, so you don't remember. But but 2003 was uh, 2003 was terrible, right? So 2003 happens. That was my first. Year I lived in New York City. That's good. Yeah. So to, to that 2003 was, um, you know, it, it it was awful, and I. New York City, and, uh, and um, you know Aaron Boone hits the home run. I hear out my winding and screaming, and it's 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 awful. I mean, it's awful, and I live right in the middle of it. and And I remember at that point I had been going to uh, Iraq a lot um, to cover. That was just after the invasion of the war. But I remember that I think the day after, two days after um, the Yankees won the, the the LCS, I actually went to Baghdad for for a month, and in which was tough, grueling, dangerous coverage. I remember being so happy to get out of New York City even though it was Iraq because I didn't want to be there um, I'd be anywhere in the world rather than New York City even Baghdad after the Yankees beat the Red Sox so then the next year the Red Sox you know the Red Sox win it after you know everything awful that had happened and it was a uh, the journalism wasn't in my consideration it was more having to do with just the utter absolute elation and life-changing um, you know it was it was among the best things ever
0: when did you become a Red Sox fan?
1: I from the, you know in vitro you know but my, my my you know my parents were both born in Boston. I was born and you know born and raised outside Boston. The Red Sox were uh, you know I was born in '72, so I was when I was a kid you know you know kindergarten '78. I was five years old. One of my you know earlier kindergarten memories um, was them wheeling no putting us all in the in the cafeteria with TV for the one game playoff. Um, which was an afternoon game. And, and so we watched the game until the school buses came. We all got in the school buses, went home to see the end of the game at home. You know, Bucky Dead hits the home run. You know, it was the worst thing ever. But but yes, yeah. I mean, it was. A, so I was, I was a, a fan from the very beginning. But it, it, it helped that they were good, You know, it right. was tragic and horrifying. It helped, it helped that they were good.
0: Uh, who, who were your favorite players growing up?
1: Rick Burleson, Jim Rice, one of my favorite players as a kid. Um, Jim Rice became a player long. Um, yeah, they were my favorite players,
0: uh, what, for sure. I mean, what were some of the, the, the favorite childhood Red Sox memories then? Uh, I I'm, I'm sh- I mean, you were too young for, I would assume,
1: Fisk then in 75. No, no. Carl Fisk was the catcher in 78. You know, I mean, it was, you know, no. I mean, the, the team, the, you know, the first team that I remember, you know, it was Jim Rice, Carl Fisk, Fred Lynn, White Evans, Rickson, Butch Hobson, Mike Torres, you know. I mean, it, it, it was those guys. Miller, Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, no, no, I mean those those, those guys were good. Uh, you know, I, I just remember watching and thinking they were awesome. Bernie Carbo. I remember I a game. I can't remember the first game I went to, but with all those great players, I remember the guy who hit the home run in the first game I actually went to was Bob Bailey. Um, <laughs> you can look that up. It, I think it was with the team for like 8 minutes I'm mean, like who's Bob Bailey Like, I know, Jim Rice or Fred Linda at home,
0: right? I think the first time I remember going to a Red Sox game the first player that I distinctly remember playing besides Wakefield because Wakefield pitches at every Red Sox game that anybody goes to uh, right. was uh, was Damien Jackson of all people like it was uh, Damien Jackson at bat and he like stole a base or something it was just like oh Damon Jackson and now you know yeah. who's
1: Damien Jackson <laughs> No, exactly. I mean, that, that, sort of, that sort of always happens. So, yeah. No, it was, uh, you know, and then, I mean, I was a fan all through, you know, forever. I mean, you know, college, um, there was a, uh, I graduated in 95 from college, and, you know, you basically, in the spring, you don't have to do anything, you can more or less stop going to class. And they were, after the, that was after the strike. Um, and I remember go. they had a home state and I would just go to almost every game. You know, it was different then. I mean, Fenway wasn't full. All the time, so I would just, I would, you know, take the tea, go over, sit in the park. I remember going to like four games in a row. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. It's all good.
0: Uh, so you, so you went to Phillips Andover, and then you went to to Harvard. Um, yeah. What? So, and so, at what point did you kind of start thinking about? I mean, you said you weren't, you hadn't really had that much experience. So, at what point did you kind of start thinking about journalism as a potential pursuit? <laughs> I,
1: you know, once I was at ABC. No, I, uh, I. <laughs> The, the first time it had ever occurred to me is reading Boys on the Bus my senior year. I, again, I was a political junkie, had some thesis about politics. Everything was about politics, but I'd always consider, you know I, I would applied to law school. I thought I was going to be a politician, um, and then you know I just decided after reading Boys on the Bus, nah, you know I don't want to do that. I think it's more exciting to cover it and watch it and sort of you know uh, um, that was sort of more of an angle. So I, I, I just had that idea, and it, it ended up working out. So
0: so once once you get to you know once you start doing the, the journalism stuff what what is what was what has been some of your your favorite memories of of your career the most memorable stories or things you've had that have the
1: opportunity to cover I did you know I I've uh you know um when I was a producer there I, I was I was embedded during the Iraq invasion um in 2003 with a Marine Infantry Battalion that was uh you know That was an incredible experience that I would never, ever, ever want to repeat. Um, But it was life changing. Um, You know, again, every election I've covered, I've loved. Um, I uh, the um, you know here's the the thing is, is that a lot of what we cover is really awful, right? I mean, you know, much much of the news that we we travel to and go to. You know, it's not for good reasons. Just in the last year, you know, I've been to Paris twice for the worst possible reasons in the world. You know, that's no good. I've been to Charleston for the worst possible reasons in the world. That's no good. Um, you know, so that's not you know rewarding to to cover that by any stretch of the imagination. Boston Marathon bombing. I was, you know, I was that I, I just started CNN a little before that, and and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, after the marathon, I was up in Boston for three weeks, anchoring for tons of hours every day. Uh, um, you know you know in some ways it was you know was important journalistically, but it wasn't fun um it's, but it's it's you know it's what you do and you need to do uh, you know for this job i when I was at ABC um for a stretch in between the campaigns and the wars and stuff, I also started working for night doing a lot for Nightline in 2020 when I got to do more profiles of you know, interesting pe- people and in that a, you know, people weren't always dying and that, that you know it's, which was a nice thing. So, uh,
0: with the marathon bombing and, and being from Boston, what was? Do you remember where you were when you heard first heard that the that the explosions went off at the finish line?
1: Yeah. Oh, sure. I so here's the thing. I had I had um, I was I had, one of the shows at CNN had wanted me to write a piece that morning about um, it was it's, it's ironic now in retrospect explaining why the marathon was important to Boston. You know, and, and so I wrote this real mass hole piece, just uh, essentially you know, explaining. You know our marathon is better than everyone else's. We're better than everyone else. Everything we do is better than everything everyone else does, and it's and more important and more significant. Um, which which I happen to think, is true. Um, so I had just finished that script. I was home already. Uh, at, you know, in the early afternoon. No, I mean barely after twelve. I remember who won the marathon, plugging in the name of the script, um, and in uh, recording it and sending it back to the show uh, on my iPhone, um, the audio. So I was done. My work was done on the- The piece um went out to mow the lawn and then my phone started going crazy that this was happening and i live in i live in just outside new york city so you know everything was going crazy And there you know i got a call soon after saying go to boston and then i didn't, didn't really come back for three weeks
0: what do you remember about uh covering that and how i mean being from boston how difficult was that for you to to be in the city in such
1: a you know every time you're around people who are you know who are um I don't want to use the word suffering because that makes it seem bad, but, but you know, having gone through tough times, you know, you feel for them. The thing that that, that, that was important to me in Boston was uh, to try to let viewers know and try to let, make sure everyone, you know, covering it with me know how that if you're in, if you, if you're from the Boston area, you know, you know someone who ran in the marathon. You know someone who was at the marathon. You were at the marathon. It's it, 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 it's 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 Patriots Day is a thing. It, you know it's you're you no one is more than one or two, um, you know, layers removed, um, from from what happened. You know you, you know someone who's a doctor in the medical community. You know, you know a kid who goes to school in Boston. This is you know you're you're what the it's you're you're just close to it, definitionally. Everyone's close to it. So it was, it was important to everyone in that area, I think, what was going on. And as the chase was going on and the manhunt on that Friday was going on, you know, tried to, you know all these towns and where all these people are in the lockdown, it was just, it was important to me um, to try to convey, again, the, the deeper meaning to what that day and that place meant to the community.
0: So you've covered uh, – I mean you mentioned that you, you've covered Paris this year and uh, Charleston yeah. uh, and having covered the marathon. When you are assigned to do that kind of story, uh, go to a place where tragedy is struck, how do you kind of approach that from a journalistic standpoint and just kind of dealing with you know, all the emotions that come with, with going to a place where something like that has happened?
1: first the first goal the first our first job is to tell people what's happening is to inform people what's going on they need to know what's happening particularly in a breaking news story that where there is a certain amount of peril and danger to to the local community and in greater community just just give people as much information as you can as often as you can that's what i try to do first and foremost and and that creates a certain amount of tunnel vision to keep you not to, you don't want to be emotionally distant, but at least keep you focused um, and from getting too, you know um, too distracted a little bit by the emotions. Then I think you want to make sure that you have empathy that you put yourself in their position, the, the position of the community as to what's going on because you need to uh, to be able to convey to people, viewers, readers, whatever what's going on, you need to let them know how it feels to be there. Uh, you know, and I think that's important too
0: so when when you're down there, uh, I mean, I mean, you also you also covered wars before. Is is that experience similar in any way? I mean, it's obviously more dangerous, but how how does that compare to, you know, to being to being in Iraq?
1: Uh, different. I mean, so so, like, um, again, war coverage. I think the two most important things are number one, tell people what's happening as much as you can because they want to know a little thing. Uh, you know, you need to be there their eyeballs, their window into that world. The other thing I feel strongly about uncovering wars is that you know if the United States, we live and work in the United States, has a military commitment overseas, we've got to tell the mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, you know, kids uh, of, of the servicemen and women how they're doing. I mean, when we, it's important. We, we have a responsibility that goes back generations, I think, as journalists to just tell the stories of our troops over there. You know, we're not picking sides or not picking sides, but you know, if there are hundred thousand Americans over there, we need to tell the families of these hundred thousand people how they're doing. So that's that's a big part of it, also. And and you know, you need to do it. it, it there is some, there is some personal risk there. I'm not a a thrill seeker by any means. I mean, there there are some journalists who crave sort of being in the, in the firing line. That's not me. Um, but you know, there, I mean, there are some risks I'm willing to take to tell important stories.
0: What are, what are some of the memories that stick out from from covering the wars and and uh, what was that like for you? Just, just seeing
1: all of that. Uh, I'm taking a bite of food, if you don't mind. Um, Any, my blood sugar's low. Um. So I was embedded with the Marines, um, a Marine Infantry Battalion, a motorized Marine Infantry Battalion, which means a motorized Infantry Battalion of Marines who get driven around in the back of trucks. These big giant trucks drive in. You jump out of the trucks and you start. That's what the Marines do. Um, they're not in, like, tanks or armored vehicles. You know, any notion that you're in these, you know, vast pretend, um, you know, juggernaut things was not who I was with. I was with these guys who put their lives in the line with guns. And when I was embedded with them, you know, I was, I was pretty low on the ladder at ABC. Um, and so there were a lot, they, they tried to put their journalists where they thought the most action would be. The people that they, you know, the, their most important reporters were going to places they thought there was the most action. So the people I was with, they sort of thought, weren't going to see any action. Well, it turned out, two or three days into the, into the invasion, uh, I was in a, in a town in Iraq called Nazaria, and that's where um, the, the, the soldier, the woman soldier whose name I can't remember, had been captured. It, and it was really the site of the first giant firefight. Or uh, one of the big firefights during the Iraq invasion, um, real battle. So I was in the middle of this, you know, having been assigned largely not as an afterthought, but as a secondary level of importance. You know, I was right where the action was right away, um, and it was tough. And there was a lot of shooting. And when we pulled into that town, there was uh, it was there was you know tracer bullets going everywhere. It was a, you know a, a pitched battle. It was pouring rain. Um, you know the Marines. One of the first things they do was dig in. I mean, they dig, they dig. You know, they dig a trench. They dig something to you know to to for cover. And they're not going to dig me one because they have their own thing to do. So I had to, you know, you dig your own hole. So I dug my you know a trench, which filled with water. You know, as the tracer bullets are going overhead. I remember, you know, as this is happening. Um, we couldn't get a camera shot up uh, with the technology we had because it was nighttime, and again there was a firefight. But I had the satellite phone. And I remember calling into Peter Jennings, uh, and they were live on TV. And I just remember how calm he was, and how calm, much calm, and how helpful that was to me. Um, it, it felt just so nurturing. I felt so much safer once he sort of had that calm, soothing voice when we're on the air, and he's just like, "Tell us what you're seeing." And so I describe what we're seeing, you know, set set the scene for it. And it was a uh, that night I'll never forget. And the next morning. Um, You know, we all crawl out of the holes, and I remember walking to the area where the battalion commander was, uh, who was a guy who now I'm friendly with, but at the time was intimidating to me. And and, uh, he was—he looked at me and my producer, my partner that I was with, and he's like, "You know, um, you know." For one of the first things he said, he said, "It it doesn't get much worse than that," and that was a big relief. It was, you know, because I'm like, "This was awful." And I, if he had said, "Ah, that's nothing." Wait until you, to, you know. Wait until we get to the next time. I wouldn't have you know. Uh, if he made clear that what we had just been through was was every bit as bad as I thought it was. That was helpful. And then he said, "You know, we were all taking the guys were taking bets on uh, on how long you guys would last if you try to get out of this." They we were like, "Nope, we're here to stay." And after that, it was sort of we were all, you know, the Marines I was with, uh, you know. Uh, I think they are in some respect for us that we uh that we stuck it out.
0: Uh-huh. Were you scared at any point, you know, just just being over there and being in the middle
1: of, of all yes. Of that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like no, at, at any point. How about at every point? Yes, it's scary. It should be scary. You know, it's it's, it's you know, war's an awful thing. You know, and it's it's um you How know How tough was that on you? Everyone experienced You're just being just being very, in the middle of that. Very. Very tough, physically tough, emotionally tough. Um you know, I mean, I don't. My, you know, my wife, I think, grew up camping, and and, and now, you know, all she wants to do was, you know, go camping with the boy, my twin your twin boys, and I'm like, I really don't want. To, I've slept out. I don't know my fill of uh, of this. So, you know, me, sleeping outside means something different to me now than it did before that all happened. Um, you know, it's it's a uh, it was the, the dangerous, awful moments in war for me, and again, everyone experiences it differently. And I wasn't fighting. Remember, I was just covering it. I sure. mean, all I was doing was being there. Um, it was it, the moments of danger are much more intense, um, much shorter, but much more intense than you can possibly imagine. Uh,
0: beyond, you know, that the, the first couple of days there and being in the middle of all of that, uh, what what kind of big takeaways did you take away from? Like, what did you learn from from that experience being over there during the war? I learned.
1: I learned about the de- dedication of the troops. I learned about the lives that they had and how hard they have to work at all times and how, what it's like to be separated from your families for that length of time. Um, and that, I think, is important. I mean, man, do I think that that's important for journalists covering anything, even campaigns. It's important to know the sacrifice that the troops make, and, and, and so you see it firsthand. I don't think you really know that. Um, that's for sure. Um, I have, you know, learned to respect, you know, war journalists, people who make it their lives to cover conflicts because they put themselves at incredible risk uh, to tell a story uh, in in something important, you know. And and so, you know, look, journalists in all, in all, all types of journalists um, get criticized more than our fair share Um, and doing that made me realize how important it is what we do. And if people want to criticize us, that's fine. But but we do something very important. Uh,
0: so when so you so you go to CNN in 2012, uh, and and you start that's right. And, and so you start hosting early start and at this hour. Uh, at that point, uh, what was what was that transition like for you moving from ABC? You know where you had worked since for all of your life. You know post post college and then and going to a new network and and then starting
1: to to anchor to these two shows. Um, it was hard, I mean, ABC is where I grew up, you know, and it's still it's a wonderful company, I still have so many friends, I, mean, I have tons of friends there, um, I feel like I have tons of family there. It was hard, it was, it, was like, it was like going away from home, but it was a risk that I thought was worth taking. Um, just like I sort of never imagined I was going to be a reporter, then a correspondent, I never really imagined I'd, I'd be an anchor, it was never a goal per se, but an opportunity presented itself. And I, I sort of the, – the calculation I made was this is the last chance I'm going to get to try that and fail. This will be the last chance I have to fail uh, and still be able to recover it and, 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 you know, and go back and not have it be the last thing I ever do, right? So this is it. Either I try it now or I never try it at all. So I decided to try it. Uh, and it's been um, amazing. I mean it's been a really interesting four years at CNN. There's been a lot of news. Uh, in a lot of different capacities, uh, our, our company's changed a lot. You know, Jeff Zucker came on not long after I did, it, and I think that changed CNN quite a bit. Um, and it's been wonderful. Uh, and, and it exercises completely different muscles. Um, you know, I think being a, you know at, at, at heart, a journalist is a journalist, right? You always want to be curious. You always want to ask questions. You always want to learn. You always want to tell stories. And that's what I did as a correspondent, and that's what I do as an anchor. But the methods, which what you do, that is very different. You know, you're you're it, it, when you're an anchor, you're sort of, you know, you're you're a, a flight controller, um, and as opposed to doing a two or three minute television news piece or a minute television news piece, now I'm on for three hours every day,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and and it took some getting used to, um, and it was but it, that that was the fun of it, right? I mean, learning how to be an anchor um, yeah. is, uh, you know. It's it's work, and I, but I enjoy the challenge.
0: So I see you when I'm when I'm up late doing uh doing homework for school. I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you start to be like oh good morning. Like I'm getting ready for for early start at 4 a.m. Uh, what is so when you're getting ready? What is what is that schedule like? What is the daily schedule like for for John Berman on a, on a daily basis?
1: So so when I'm on my normal schedule, and I'm only on my normal schedule like half the time. But when I'm on my normal schedule, I um you know I wake up at 1:30. Um, I get myself to work an hour before the show at four, um, and and when I get to work, I you know I, I do I I re- because I was a writer a TV writer before I was anything I, I rewrite all read so I, but that's the way I learn it helps me with my thinking process but it's all very the time the lead up time in the morning is all very quick it's you wake up, up you shower you get to work you make those changes you sit down and you're on TV that makes it sound like it's all last minute the truth is is, is that I do almost all my work the night before where I'm, or, or even all throughout the day where I read, most of what I do in life is I just read a tremendous amount of news. I mean, I, I'm reading, you know, I spend an hour or two every afternoon and evening reading, you know, the, the, a variety of newspapers and news sources um, so that when I wake up the next morning, I know everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So, you, so, you, um, so that's sort of the preparation
0: process. So, you, so you get to the office at at three a.m. Uh, how do yeah. you? Is the, do you have any any rituals that you have before going on on TV?
1: It's not enough time for rituals. It's like you sit down at the computer, you go through the rundown of the show, you change everything you feel like you need to change, run up to makeup, sit down at the desk, you know, and uh, and go. Uh,
0: I know uh, a lot of people get their perception of of what TV news is like from from. Uh, how it's portrayed in the media and and things like the newsroom uh, on HBO, mm. how similar or dissimilar is uh, is your experience uh, from being on uh, being an anchor on TV to to what you you know what is what is portrayed in in things like the newsroom? I, I think it's
1: radically different. You know, I think it's radically different. I think I think newsroom. You know, um, and I like Aaron Sorkin. I mean, I I I, uh, uh, I I think it's uh the perception of what we can can't do, should or shouldn't do, is just out of whack in, in that show. I mean, you know, look, I want to tell people what's ha- happening, and I want to be fair, and I want to be provocative. That's it. I mean, you know, and, and beyond that, and I want people to watch. Um, I also there, there are people who think that all we do is, you know, is read out loud, um, and I would say there are, in fact, times when we read out loud, and, you know, we're just reading what's on a teleprompter, but most of our job, the most important part of our job is when there's breaking news. You know, and even if that's only 30 or 40 percent of the time, that's the most important part, when there's something happening, and when that, when there's breaking news, there's no teleprompter. When there's breaking news, you've got to know, you know, it, it's, all, it's on you, and you've got to be good enough and, and read in enough and informed enough to know how to present that information um, with nothing. Um, and that's why I do so much reading, and that's why I do so much preparation, not because you can prepare for breaking news, because by definition you can't, but... You know, if you know what's going on in the world, um, you know how to explain something. You know, you know enough of the background of each area where it might be uh, to, to help people process it as it's happening.
0: So, so bring me into uh, a moment in time recently, I guess, when there was breaking news. How do you, when you're on the air, prepare for that, uh, and how do you go about uh, dealing with with whatever is happening?
1: Um, you know i've been on i 've been, been on during my shows' been some you know I remember the first week I started at uh, at um, at c n the Friday i think it was a Friday of my very first week it was my fifth day as an anchor the the uh, the Aurora theater shooting uh, and that happened an hour before it went on air um, and so one of my first days on the job were telling people about that. Uh, that was remarkable. And you're getting, you know, and you're you're getting the information as it's happening. I remember we had an Aurora, Colorado, you know, police spokesman on the phone, and we just kept that person on the phone as long as we could, and we just kept getting more and more information about that, as we could about that horrible Um You know, and, and, and you know, so that was that, that happened on a, I remember, you know, another sort of obscure moment was, um, in Syria. Uh, one of our reporters, a guy named Phil Black, terrific reporter, was just uh, was on the border between Turkey and Syria and his cameras were looking at this hillside and he saw was able to see this live firefight between, you know, the Kurdish forces and an ISIS fighters. And it was this unbelievable picture of this fight going on and these ISIS fighters sort of on this hillside within the range of Turkish guns and uh, but the Turks weren't firing, and it happened during our show. We just kept it on for the whole hour with just me talking to Phil about what he was seeing, what we our cameras were seeing, and also why it was important. It it, it, it got to the, the the complications of this conflict, which at that point Turkey wasn't involved. I'm like Phil, there, you know, there's a dozen ISIS fighters right there. You know, you could throw a rock at them practically. Why isn't Turkey firing? And it's well, because Turkey doesn't want to get involved. You know, Phil. You're a hundred yards away, maybe half a mile away from these ISIS fighters. I can see them. You can see them. Why isn't the U.S. sending in an airplane? Well, U.S. planes are out of range. You know, you sort of learn the limitations. And that was a, um, it was a pretty – it was an interesting and exciting in its own way uh, hour of television.
0: So you've been in journalism for close to 22 years now? If yeah, that, that makes me old. <laughs> that makes me old. How have you seen the industry change since you first entered? obviously with the invention of you know the the boom of the internet there's been a lot of things that have changed with like twitter and, and how you get your news and how you uh consume your news but how have you seen a change from your end on the on the tv side
1: uh the tv side you know it, it it's the ability to pro, to to send an image is so much easier than it ever was right i mean you know we used to have to send a this giant satellite truck to be live somewhere now you can, you can do it with like two cell phones uh, if you have to um and so the so the technical barriers um have, you know are, are just disappearing to making television uh, that's interesting you know the editing you know used to be linear used to be tape you know you record play record play record play it, it, if you're putting together a news piece now it's all you know non-linear with the ad, and that happened early on but but it's it's uh you know again you don't need a satellite to feed the tape you can do it over a cell phone that's that's so much easier you No, know, i t- this is i'm not blowing smoke up your ass here but whenever i talk to journalism students or whatever everyone asks me about the state of journalism. I tell a story about you, which is that I'm am I'm a giant, you know, I'm a giant baseball fan and sports fan, right? So you know, I, I consume tons of sports information on Twitter and on Bleacher Report and everywhere else. Um, and you know, I started I don't know how many years ago it was probably what two years ago. Um, you were I guess interning at W E I.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that was yeah I was that was in the Red Sox meet okay. with uh, Alex and Alex beard and Rob Radford at that time.
1: Yeah, so so you know, so I can you know I, I, on Twitter I read whatever I can from from the, the Boston news sources I like, and I was reading tons of articles from from that were linked to from Twitter to the WDEI site, and you know, and you had a byline, and you were writing tons of stuff, and I was enjoying it, and it never occurred to me, you know, you sort of do, I always I do look at bylines, but beyond the byline, I don't necessarily know that much about the individual, um, but I assume if you have a byline for a respected site that I like and does good information, that you know it, that that you're a professional journalist. Uh, and then I remember, um, you know, I, I, we probably tweeted back and forth a bunch, just you know, randomly. And then I remember hearing from you that you know you were interested in uh, in internships, and I was confused. <laughs> uh, I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, what? What are you talking about? It turns out you were like a freshman in college, or not even. I do not go to high school. I don't even know. And I, and I was like, how can this be? And I, and I realized that how just unbelievably different everything is now, that if you can, um, you know, if you can produce journalism like you were producing as young as you were, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just wildly different, you know, because 20 years ago, there's no, you wouldn't have been able to do that anywhere. Yeah. You know, working for the smallest town newspaper, um, you know, covering, you know, like, like, like junior high hockey, you know, it's just, it just will not happen. And there you were with an internship that was allowing you to write on the Red Sox um for you know for a reputable site and covering news. And so yeah, I, I just I tell people, you know, it's out there. There are opportunities out there now that weren't out there before. Uh, I know so- I, I assume you were like some some like forty five year old dude who'd <laughs> like game you know, done it for
0: and, and I'm basically sitting in my in my dorm room uh recording this in my pajamas right now, so um <laughs> But uh i and, and uh I know I know from uh from you know following me on Twitter for, for the past couple of years or so, uh you're you're a big Jeopardy person and you've had the opportunity to be on, on Celebrity Jeopardy. Um how, and, and you won on your uh, Celebrity Jeopardy appearance. Uh what was what was that experience like and, and being with Alex Trebek and, and you know
1: going through the whole shebang? Winning was awesome. No, um it was uh it was It was surreal, like beyond surreal. Um, First of all, you know, I still don't fully know how I got on Celebrity Jeopardy because you know they must have a very broad definition of the word celebrity. So I feel like I suspect like they must have had a real celebrity drop out at the last minute and I was available, so they they got me to go in. So there was that aspect of it that was to begin with. Um, You get to the studio and they actually tape like three shows back to back to back. So you're you know you're sort of cycled in and cycled out. Um, when you go up on the stage, you you play a whole game first. You uh, you have a dress rehearsal with a fake Alex Trebek, but they do the whole game. You know where they every round all you know questions, because um, they want you to practice and get it right. And there's a producer assigned to each contestant to sort of help them out and uh, to make sure they understand how the game works and everything else. Um, and after like the second segment, the producer who was assigned to me comes over and says, Hey, you know, we you know, we want you to look like you're having fun. And I said, I'm not. I <laughs> know like I'm not. I, I said, I can either try to win or I can have fun. I can't do both. Um and so but but it sort of got me to loosen up a little bit. No, you know, it's 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 tough. I mean it was it was uh it was tough and uh it was um it's one of those things where uh, y- you know, I-, I I I'm reluctant to admit how happy it made me that I won, that I won, <laughs> but it did. I was so happy. I'm so into it. It was. Great. I was so, so surprised too. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that was like a like a bucket list kind of moment for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good um... times. Except for the fact that I never thought I'd be in Celebrity Jeopardy in a million years, so I never planned for it. Um. You know, it was it was sort of beyond bucket list. It's like. Sort of like I can't actually believe it happened list.
0: Yeah. Well, John, thanks for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: It's great to talk to you.
0: Thanks again for listening to the show this week. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to the show on whatever you listen to your podcasts on. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a rating on iTunes as well. It really does help us out and make sure to follow the show on twitter at doing it uh at Bartolopod, excuse me and you can also follow me on twitter as well at i am june lee uh thanks again for uh to paul swiden and the hardball times and fangrass for hosting the podcast on the website and uh, until next week guys see you guys later